All right. <clears throat> the book of Acts. We were on session 15, and we had talked about Paul's conversion last time. We talked about Paul uh, being persecuted now. Uh, the people who were his friends were quick to turn on him and to chase him down. We talked a little bit about the tangled web that politics were with King Aretas uh, and his daughter who married Herod, but then was divorced so that Herod could marry his brother's uh, ex-wife. And um, that led to the beheading of John the Baptist. The same guy who's hunting down Paul uh, is kind of involved in that. And so we were talking about then how Paul escaped. Um, and we we're on the back of session 15 up at the top. And so we had just read Acts 9, 26 through 31. Let's read that, and then we'll go back to B and kind of wrap up where we left off and then move on to the next section there. So Acts 9, 26 through 31. Let's read that. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. 27. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Grecian Jews, but they tried to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Tyrrhenia and sent him off to Tarsus. Now, we talked last time about Barnabas a lot, and uh, the reason that they were able to get along is they had gone to the same school, graduated from the same teacher, uh, and so they had that connection. They probably had known each other beforehand. Where I want to pick up is that Paul escapes to Caesarea Maritima. Uh, it says just Caesarea there, but this is Caesarea Maritima. There's lots of places in the ancient world called Caesarea because uh, if you were a ruler and you wanted to suck up, you named something after the, the big ruler, Caesar. Caesar Augustus, Caesar uh, Tiberius, uh, Julius Caesar. You just named it after Caesar, and that was a good way to, uh, to get some bonus points. Okay, so Caesarea Maritima, we've got a couple notes on the page there. We know it's Caesarea Maritima because he hops on a ship and goes to Tarsus, his birth city. Now... Caesarea Maritima is a really neat place to visit um, because it is the only harbor, uh, and when I say harbor, I don't mean the only place boats could go, but the only harbor that you could put a boat in and it would be protected from storms and things like that, that was on the coast of the Mediterranean on that side. Uh, there, there's another one perhaps up by Tyre, um, but... 
This is the only one for hundreds of miles on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. You see here the Mediterranean Sea, and you can kind of see at least part of the harbor still out there. This was called the Sebestus um, Artificial Harbor. Uh, Sebestus is the Greek word that is the same thing in Latin as Augustus. It uh, means August one, right? Uh, holy one, divine one. Uh, and so this is the Greek word uh, for the name of emperor, Augustus. And it's an artificial harbor. Uh, it's the capital of Roman Judea. And it's the place where Pontius Pilate would have lived. It's the place where Herod the Great spent a lot of time living. Uh, it's the place where Herod Agrippa spent a lot of time living. It's the place where Felix lived. We'll hear about him later on in the book of Acts. And it had this great, uh, incredibly technologically advanced artificial harbor built by Herod the Great. Okay? Um, the artificial harbor, this is just random, fun, interesting things with Pastor Moline, contained 100,000 cubic meters of water. And the way that they built it was, uh, it was the largest artificial harbor of its day. They took and built these big wooden forms, and they floated them out to where they needed to be, and then with little boats, they would take out concrete and fill up the form with concrete. And after it was full of concrete, it would sink, and then the concrete would harden in there. Now, even more interesting is, I don't know if you've worked with concrete. Concrete doesn't really work that well underwater, right? <laughs> because it kind of just washes away, especially on the coast of the sea. Uh, becomes waterlogged. It doesn't become hard. So to make this concrete, they actually shipped it in from a city in Italy called Putoli. So they shipped the concrete from Italy to the coast here to make this artificial harbor. Um, and that's a pretty interesting thing. Because it is the center of Roman Judea, the capital, it is a pagan city with pagan temples, with a theater, uh, with um, uh, uh, a circus that was there. And we'll, I've got some pictures of that I'll show you here. So um, it is not a Jewish place, but it is the harbor. And for that reason, people have to go in and out of there. Uh, here you can kind of see a picture of what's left of the harbor. The harbor was used uh, for hundreds of years after it was built, um, but over time, uh, and because of perhaps a tsunami, it has kind of washed away and been destroyed, but there are sections of it still out underneath the water uh, that are still there. Uh, even at the time of the Crusades, while not uh, as usable as it had been, um, this is where a lot of the crusaders came in and out of the Holy Land. Uh, if you watched the movie, which isn't really that accurate, but um, City of God, the place where um, Balian comes into the Holy Land is Caesarea Maritima. Uh, so that just kind of gives you an idea of how important it was. There's a couple other interesting things about Caesarea that I want to point out, and these the reason I'm doing this is because this is one of those places that you can go visit that has evidences of the historical accuracy of Scripture. And one of the most important ones 
comes from this. This is the palace, or what's left of it. You can kind of see the, uh, uh, the foot of that column there in the foreground. Uh, this palace jutted out into the Mediterranean Sea, and it's where Herod the Great lived, Pontius Pilate lived, and Felix lived. Um, and it's important because up until 1961, the people who don't believe the Bible's true didn't believe there was actually a person named Pontius Pilate. Have you ever heard that? Okay. Now this, they said it was just a made-up thing, which is interesting because it's not just in the Bible that we hear about Pilate. We hear about him in Philo. We hear about him in Josephus. Um, there's one other guy, and his name just disappeared. We hear about him in other places, but they all said these are made-up inventions uh, that Christians put in there to try and make the Bible sound true. But in 1961... They found in Caesarea Maritima an inscription that said, In honor of Tiberius Caesar, put here by the prefect Pontius Pilate. And it's really important because not only did they deny that there was a Pontius Pilate, they also said there's no such thing as the Roman office of prefect. Okay? So not only can he not be uh, a real person, but he is in an invented office. But the inscription comes from the life of Pontius Pilate, and it says, Prefect Pontius Pilate on it. And I've got a picture of it here in a second. Now, he's a prefect, which is a little different. We always just kind of say governor, right? Um, and that's an easy way to say it. The trouble is, he's a prefect because he's actually responsible first and foremost to the governor of Syria. Uh, and so he's not technically a governor himself. He's a prefect responsible to a governor. But Tiberius Caesar was not a nice guy and was a little crazy. Um, and I think I'll just leave it at that. We won't go into all the reasons why. Uh, he didn't let the governor of Syria actually go to Syria. And so a lot of the things Pontius Pilate had to do on his own. Um, he was more of a bureaucrat then? Yes, yes, he's a Roman. Uh, even his name uh, indicates this to us. Um, he's not a first-generation Roman citizen. He's a second-generation Roman citizen because uh, his name, Pontius, indicates that he was from the area of Pontus and that he had been given citizenship. And then to become a prefect or a governor, you had to have served in the Roman Senate in some way, shape, or form. So he had even been there uh, in some way, shape, or form. Now, the inscription was found here, which is just about 100 feet from where the last picture was taken. Okay? And this is the Roman theater in Caesarea Maritima. It has been rebuilt. They, they dug up all the stones. They were lying there in a pile, and they put them back together in this shape. Most of them are the original stones. Some of them are not. If you look closely at the picture, you can tell. Like, you see how these ones are a little cleaner and smoother than this one or this one? That's because those aren't the originals. But when they were digging this up in a back stairway, they had found this stone from Pontius Pilate that had been taken out of the Temple of Tiberius and reused to build... Uh, to rebuild some stairs in this particular theater. And um, 
Here is the actual stone itself. Uh, and it's hard to read after 2,000 years. I guess we can forgive that. But um, you can see at the top, it was a part of the Tiberium, which would be a temple to Caesar Tiberius. Uh, and then underneath that, uh, you can see Pilatus right here. And you can see it would have said Pontius Pilatus. Uh, and then down here is where it would have said prefect. So evidence that Pontius Pilate was a real person. And so now we know that that's the truth. And you don't hear as often today that Pontius Pilate was invented. Okay. Questions on Pilate or that? One more thing I think is interesting. I told you the circus was at Caesarea. They had one, a Roman circus. This is where they had chariot races and things like that. You know that from Ben-Hur, right? <laughs> okay. Um, at, at the uh, circus, this is the king's box, which means who's the person who would have sat in this little area? <laughs> king Herod, King Herod, Pontius Pilate, Felix, all these people. And so I went and sat there for a while, so I've sat where they've sat. What's that? You may kiss my ring. <laughs> so there you go. All right. So that's a little bit about Caesarea. It's not all on the paper, but I think that's important. Letter D. And this is where we kind of want to leave this particular section so we can move on to the next one. In that passage that we read from Acts 9, and specifically the last verse, 31, how is the church described even in the face of the persecution of that time? Multiplying. Yeah, peace. Um, multiplying. What's the thing that's bringing peace? The Holy Spirit, right? Um, the Holy Spirit comforting. What's the way the Holy Spirit comforts? Bringing the Word of God. Yeah, the Holy Spirit, this is always important, and this is why we want to emphasize this, Especially because in our modern American society, there's people who don't understand the Holy Spirit correctly. The Holy Spirit doesn't just fly around and float around. The Holy Spirit is always, always, always attached to God's Word. And so where God's Word is preached in its truth and purity, the Holy Spirit is working. And so even while they're being persecuted or hated or mistreated, they get together and they hear God's word. And because they believe God's word, they have peace and comfort. Those are the two things it says. And they also fear the Lord. What's it mean to fear the Lord? Why, why does Luke use that word? Okay, yeah, we're on the right path. Let's take it a little further than that even. Okay, that's part of it too. We can summarize all of those things with one F word. Faith. 
not that F word. Yeah, that one. Okay. Faith. Faith. The Holy Spirit's creating faith. The Holy Spirit's comforting. The Holy Spirit is growing the church. And the Holy Spirit is doing that through the word. The word preached, the word in baptism, and the word in the Lord's Supper. In the word, God is working. And um, I think that's always important to point out. I mean, all those parts are there, but we kind of can just quick read over it without thinking about it. But that's the real, the same truth for us, right? Um, is everything sunshines and rainbows in our world? No. no. So where can we have peace and comfort and grow in faith? In the Word. In the Word. That's why it's so important to be in church on a regular basis, to hear the Word, to receive the gifts, because that's where the Holy Spirit is working in us. And that's the whole book of Acts brings this out again and again and again and again and again. All right. Any questions on that section? All right, then let's read Acts 9, 32 through 35. And I'm just going to tell you the truth here. We're kind of in a transition part of the book of Acts, okay? Because we've had Paul be converted. And the next big thing that's going to come up is we're going to see the church beginning to go uh, and convert um, Gentiles to Christianity. And there's going to be a big debate about that. And we're kind of in between. So the things we're going to talk about in this little section might not be as big and exciting. But it's still in God's word and so it's worth learning. So 32 through 35. Yeah. A side note here. I talked to Victor last night about this. There's a program running on KNN where a pastor interviews the filmmaker marketing of Messiah. Okay. If you listen to it. I, I haven't caught that one, no. Well, if, if, if you would, the filmmaker makes the argument that Paul made all this up and <laughs> spread it among the disciples. So, okay. Just for future, if, maybe the next time around, I just, before it escaped my mind again. Yeah. Well, we, we, can, uh, we can talk about that real briefly here. Um, did Paul make all this up? <clears throat> now, I would say absolutely not. And I think there's evidences within the text itself that says Paul isn't making it up. First off, we are going to get into some stuff here in the next couple verses that are geographical things that are accurate. Okay? And... If I'm making up a story about France, what's a big problem that I have? I don't live in France, so I could tell you about Paris. I might even be able to tell you about Marseille, right? Um, I've seen paintings of Marseille. I know the Tour de France is there. I know they have wine and grapes and chalk for champagne growing wine. <laughs> it's bad if that's mostly what I know, right? Um, 
But I couldn't get into the little details. Paul's going to get, or Luke is going to get into the little details, the towns of uh, Lydda, the towns of Lod, um, things like that, that show first-hand account. Well, you could say, okay, Paul grew up there. He knows these things. Well, he didn't. He also says he grew up in Tarsus, and then he came to Jerusalem. But he knows all the small towns, indicating he's traveled around there. We're also going to get, we're not there yet. We're going to get a confession from St. Luke that some of the things he's writing about, he's actually a first-hand witness. Because in the entire Gospel of Luke, and all this point up to here, even in the book of Acts, Luke is writing and he's saying, Peter did this, Jesus did that, Paul did this. And then all of a sudden, he's going to change, and he's not going to say, Paul did this anymore. He's going to say, we did this. We traveled here. We traveled there. What does that tell you? He's traveling with Paul. Yeah, it tells you when Luke showed up, and now it's not just someone else's testimony, it's his. There's one more thing, and this is uh, clear in the Gospel of Luke, and so if you put a bookmark here in Acts 9, uh, we kind of have talked a little bit about this, but um, go to uh, Luke 24, 13. Uh, let, let's skip it even all the way. Luke 24, 18. This is after Jesus rose from the dead. And um, Jesus rose from the dead, and after that, during the day, two disciples are walking from Jerusalem up to the town of Emmaus. Okay, another little town that um, is so well known that we don't know exactly where it is. <laughs> We know it existed from inscriptions and things, but we don't know where it is. So again, indicating a knowledge of the topography and the geography. These two guys are walking, and suddenly Jesus shows up and starts talking to them. And in verse 18 it says, One of them, named Cleopas, answered Jesus and said, Are you the only one who's been in Jerusalem that doesn't know what's going on? What does this tell you? Why did Luke include the name of Cleopas, but not the other one? What's that? He was, well, it could be, right? Um, I would say probably not, because then Luke, just from the way he's written the other places, if Luke was the other one, he would have said, we... But he doesn't. He says there were two, and one of them was named Cleopas. I would submit to you, he says, this guy's name is Cleopas, because when Luke wrote it, you could go and talk to Cleopas. If he was making it up, the best thing he could have done was to put no names. If he was making it up, the next best thing he could have done was to put two names of people you could not talk to, <laughs> right? That were already dead. Because why? What's that? Jesus was 
Jesus was already raised. Paul, uh, Luke, uh, Luke says, this guy's name is Cleopas, and you can go and talk to him, is essentially what he's doing by naming Cleopas. There's lots of places like this in Scripture where someone's name is given, and that you can go and talk to them about it. In fact, there's an entire book by uh, a famous British Christian named Richard Baucom called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. And he goes through all of the New Testament places where we have these weird things where there's a name given where there doesn't have to be or where one name is given out of a group or things like that. In all of these instances, they are someone you can talk to. And finally, I know we're getting distracted. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, if Paul made it up, when they arrested him and kept him in prison for four years or more, four years we have recorded, what would he have done? What should he have done? Just let me out of jail. I'll tell everyone the truth. I made it all up. It's nonsense. But instead, what did Paul do? Cut off my head. Uh, I'm not backing down. The last one is probably the weakest argument, but it's still... Um, when you were a kid and you told a lie to your mom or dad, I'm sure none of you did that. Maybe it's just me, right? When it got to be real serious consequences, it was better just to finally tell the truth rather than to stick to your lie, right? And I'd say the same would be true for Paul. The technique used today by law enforcement. Yeah. And it works a lot. Because when you tell the truth, you usually set yourself up to have um, lesser consequences, right? <laughs> there still might be consequences. All right. Is that, that's a real brief... The second part, so I mean, yeah, thank you, and I appreciate hearing more. Yeah, we'll, we'll, um, when we get to the point where Luke switches his language, I'll make sure we point that out, because it's there uh, in the book of Acts, and I just can't remember the verse, the chapter and verse off the top of my head. Vicar, do you remember which chapter and verse? No, off the top of my head. Okay, it's there. We'll get there. I'll point it out. One, one quick thing to add uh, Larry had mentioned to me last night it's a two part documentary two part uh, interview with the maker of this documentary and what he was saying was not just that he was making up like anything that happened in the book of Acts but that all of the New Testament came from Paul and that Paul made everything up which Lutheran pastors and so far he had not brought up well, you mean Paul made up all the things he talked about from the Old Testament? Uh, but there's another part. It was on it. It's a Lutheran pastor, you said? Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm going to guess. KNNA. It was on KNNA. 5 a.m. Tuesday morning. Okay. I caught the first part of the interview. Hopefully the Lutheran pastor is debunking all this. We'll, we'll have to hunt it down and listen to it. There's why I haven't heard it, Leonard. <laughs>
there's not a lot that uh, I'm doing at 5 a.m. normally. So usually at the point I'm kind of staring at the wall, you know, <laughs> scratching my head. So at best. Okay. Um, let's read Acts 9, 32 through 35 then. That sounds good. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ holds you, heals you, rise and make your bed, and immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him. And they turned to the Lord. All right. So, Eric, kids, here you have it. It's biblical. When you get out of bed, you have to make your bed. <laughs> just teasing. <laughs> I'm just teasing. Um, here we have uh, another healing, and this takes place in the city of Lydda. Uh, it's, it, presently, the name of the place is Laud. Uh, that's just the way the names come throughout the, the centuries. But essentially, uh, it's where the Tel Aviv airport is. Okay? So if you go to visit Israel, you will fly into the Tel Aviv airport, and that's right next to where this particular thing takes place. The city of Laud... Um, it goes all the way back to the Old Testament. First Chronicles 8 talks about it. And it is built by the relatives of the Jewish judge Ehud. Now, has it been two years, three years ago, we did Judges for Life Light? You remember Ehud? He's the left-handed guy, um, a Benjaminite, I believe, who stabs to death... Uh, is it the Moabite king Eglon? And Eglon is famous because his name means cow, which not cow like uh, we use the word cow, like, you know, Vicar, you're a big old cow or whatever. <laughs> but it meant cow like you have a, a beautiful face like a female cow with long eyelashes and things. But at the same time, Eglon was so fat that the sword got stuck in him. <laughs> Uh, it, it did come out the other side, okay? The whole thing was inside. So, uh, that's Eglon uh, with Ehud. Ehud's the one who kills him to set the Jewish people free. His relatives and his family then found this city of Lod, uh, which at that time was known as Lydda. It also is in the Bible uh, in the sense that Captives returning from Babylon settled in the city of Lydda in Ezra chapter 3. We know it from history too because the Roman consul Cassius captured it in 43 BC and everyone who lived there was sold into slavery. And then two years later, Mark Antony comes along and he sets them all free. Um, and it's also then mentioned in the book of Maccabees, which is out, it's not in the Bible, it's the uh, Apocrypha, but at that time it was completely Jewish, and so it's mentioned there also. So that's the city of Lydda, and if you have your map there, 
You see the dark section? Just to the south of that would be about where it is. Okay, just to the south, probably 10 miles from the Mediterranean Sea. So he goes to Lydda. And um, it's also there that is the plain of Sharon. Okay, and you hear about the plain of Sharon in Scripture also, which is from Lydda to the sea. And that black space on the map is that plain. It's an agricultural area, a sheep grazing area. Uh, it's also swampy, okay, because the mountains kind of come into this flat plain close to the sea. And it's mentioned then also in Song of Solomon 2, verse 1, as well as in Isaiah 65, 8 through 12, um, which we could get into. We'll just keep on going through of our time here. Okay. Now, in this area, we have a guy named Aeneas. Do any of you guys recognize the name Aeneas? He's the guy they named the Aeneid after. Yes. Uh, is that... I heard another... I always thought it was Ananias. I don't know how to pronounce it. Ananias is a different name, and that is a Jewish name. Aeneas is a different guy. Like you said, the Aeneid is named after him. And it is a Roman name. Um, Roman... It's popular in the Romans. It does... I'll just quick give you a rundown, <laughs> right? The Aeneid is a story about survivors from the siege of Troy. So you know Homer wrote the, um, the Iliad and the Odyssey. And the Iliad is about um, the siege of Troy with Achilles and uh, Agamemnon and Paris and the conflict that took place. Uh, with Helen of Troy and the, the face that launched a thousand ships, right? Okay. When they brought the Trojan horse in there and burned down the city of Troy, Aeneas leads a group of survivors out of Troy and they get onto boats. And the Aeneid is about their journey. They get on their boats, and they're caught in a storm, and that's how the story begins. And they actually end up landing in the city of Carthage. And Aeneas, his wife, had died in the siege of Troy, and he falls in love with the queen who's founding the city of Carthage. They fall in love, and then one of the gods comes and says, Aeneas, you can't marry her. You're going to go found the city of Rome in Italy. And so he gets back in his boats and sails away like the day before the wedding is supposed to be. And the queen of Carthage, I think her name is Dido, she's angry and so she kills herself. Which makes all the Carthaginians hate Aeneas. <laughs> so then Aeneas sails up and he founds, he doesn't found the city of Rome, but he sails up to Italy, he lands there, and... Um, his descendants are Romulus and Remus, who found the city of Rome, who the Carthaginians hate because of that, which leads to the Punic War. That's the very basic story. 
It's not important to what we're talking about, but it's worth the read. It's worth the read. um, Aeneas is that name. Now, why am I pointing all this out? What does this tell us about this man? What's that? Yes. He at least is Romanized, right? Whether he's Roman Gentile or not, he's named after a Roman, which tells you something about his upbringing. This is important because up to this point, who are Christian? Jews. Jews. Jews are converting to Christianity. We have a few outliers, right? So, for example, Jesus healed the centurion's um, daughter or son? Daughter. Jesus healed the centurion's daughter. Okay, so he's a Roman, but he also was a Roman who gave money to the synagogue. So maybe he's actually a Jew. Okay? Remember, because they said, can you do this for him? Because he gave all this money to our synagogue. Wasn't actually a servant, now that I think about it? Maybe. Okay? Healed somebody for him. We don't have anybody who's not Jewish yet who's converting to Christianity. And now Peter's preaching in Lydda, and they say there's a man named Aeneas who's paralyzed. And what does Peter do? He heals him. He heals him. But in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus, absolutely. And so we know that there's a sermon going with that, okay? We only have one word of it. And the word is... um, Epistrepo. Okay? Uh, Peter says to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And this word, rise and make your bed, is really the word epistrepo, which means turn to the Lord. Okay? So there's the sermon. Uh, We could get into the question is there law in that? Turn to the Lord, if that's your sermon. Like, Pastor Moline, why didn't you preach that sermon last night, right? (laughs) Epistrepo, turn to the Lord. Is there law? Yes. It indicates you are not following the Lord. Is there gospel? Yeah, we could say there is. If we're summarizing, we could get there. Okay? All right. So, he preaches this sermon to this guy with a Latin Roman name. And this is the point where we're starting to switch. And you can see it coming up here. Peter and Cornelius is going to be chapter 10. And this is going to lead to a big debate within Christianity. Can non-Jewish people be Christian or not? We know the answer. (laughs) They had to have a long discussion about it back then. This is the first indication that Christianity is going to go beyond Jewish people. All right. Um, Questions? Okay. We're going to keep on going then to page 16. So let's start by reading Acts 9, 36. 
I don't know where we left off. Are we in the... We have the last one. the last one? Okay. Adelaide, you want to read? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Oh, we're going to just pause there. Because um, we have this name. We have a woman in Joppa. Uh, a disciple, and her name is Tabitha, which means Dorcas. Now, every kid I have ever known wishes they had the name Dorcas, right? Uh, we went to um, Dorcas Cavett Elementary School when I was a kid. Isn't it Dorcas? Okay. I think it was Dorcas Cavett. Dick Cavett's mom. Okay. That was the school here in Lincoln. Okay. What's that? I had Dorcas Cavett as a teacher. Did you? Okay. There you go. I went to Dorcas Cavett Elementary when they opened it, and Dick Cavett came for the uh, dedication, which is kind of cool. So there you go. I have been in the presence of greatness. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's why I'm king. That's right. Uh, let's also, uh, well, well, let's turn to Song of Solomon 2, verses 1 through 7. And while you're turning there, I want to tell you what the name Dorcas and Tabitha mean, because they're actually quite beautiful names, even though Dorcas sounds dorky. Um, Song of Solomon 2. Dorcas is the Greek name for gazelle, and Tabitha is the Hebrew name for gazelle. Okay, and just to give you an idea of what we're talking about, in the picture there we have three Dorcases, <laughs> or Tabithas, gazelles, the kind that would have been in Israel at the time. Okay, let's, uh, let's read Song of Solomon 2, 1 through 7, because we're in the plain of Sharon, we have all this stuff going on, Sure, that'd be great, Vicar. I am the Rose of Sharon. Sharon? However you prefer. You said Sharon. I am a Rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. As a lily among brambles, so is my love among the young women. As an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. With great delight I sat in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. Sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am sick with love. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Okay, here we have discussion about the plain of Sharon or Sharon, Right? And at the same time, we also have discussion about gazelles or Dorcases. <laughs> okay? And so you see here, God is fulfilling his word, even in the work of the church here, uh, in that the church is going to this place and he's got this person named there that is going to become a Christian at the same time. Now, Tabitha is the Hebrew word. 
Dorcas is the Greek word. What's that tell us about the people? Yeah, the culture in this part of the country has both Greek influence and Hebrew influence. Okay, and so this woman is probably Jewish, but she spends so much time with the Greeks that she also has a Greek name. Okay, so this is a cosmopolitan society with lots of different languages and peoples and stuff interacting all the time. Okay, so we have there the name. Acts 9.37, let's read that verse. So are we to you, Job? Okay, she becomes ill. Tabitha, Dorcas, the gazelle are uh, in the valley of Sharon. They wash her body and lay her out in the upper room. I want to point out again, here we see Christians, and what are they doing? Taking care of each other, specifically one of their own who has died. Okay, they wash her body and they set it up uh, in the upper room. And the implication is what are they going to do soon? Bury her. Okay. Now, uh, this is the typical care for a dead body and it makes sense. Uh, we haven't really talked about this particular instance of it. But when a person is dying, what things happen? What's that? They lose control of things. That's a great way to say it, Leonard, right? They lose control of things. Um, they, she's sick, too, so who knows what kind of sickness it was. She could have been vomiting. She could have been uh, losing control. All these things, right? And she's suffering and struggling. It's not until she dies that they do what? Wash her off so that she can look presentable to be buried. That's what the Christians are doing. That's what we ought to do also, right? And we still, we do that to a certain extent. We take care of the bodies of our loved ones. On Saturday, we're going to do that for another one of our members, right? Who had passed away. We're going to take the body. We're going to put it in the ground. Okay? All right. Christian practice. All right. Let's read 38 through 42 then. Let's see, are we to you, Clark? We're back up to the front, okay. I think. So Peter. So Peter rose and went with him. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing, and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with him. But Peter put them all aside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, rise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, Mm -hmm. He took her by the hand. Okay. He took her by the hand. And 
helped her to her feet. Then he called the believers and the widows and presented her to them alive. This became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. All right. Okay. Um, it just it struck me something while we were reading that, too. But we'll talk about it. We get there. We have in Acts nine here this woman who is sick and she dies, and what's going to happen? Resurrected. The book of Acts, remember all the way from our very first lesson, who's the one who's doing the acts that we're talking about in the book? Yes, Jesus through the disciples. What did Jesus do several times during his ministry? Who's the one who raises Dorcas from the dead? Jesus. Yeah, I want to make sure we point that out. It's not Peter. It's Jesus. Now, I also want to point out, um, Tabitha gets sick and she dies, and who do they call? Who's who? He's a, what's his job? Pastor. Pastor, right? When you get sick, what should you do? Call the doctor. Sure, call the doctor and call the pastor, right? Um, we try to go and see everybody when we know that there's something going on. We aren't always perfect at it, but we try. We're pretty close to perfect when we know. We are 0% when we don't know. <laughs> okay? So... They call the pastor, the pastor to come. The pastor is going to do things, but in this particular instance, he's going to do what Jesus did in Luke 7. He's going to do what Jesus did in Mark 5, raising the dead. And I think, you know, we're almost out of time here, so we'll have to pick that up next week. I want to point out some interesting things here about um, Dorcas also. We talked about how her name means gazelle. We talked about how that reflects how she's a beloved person because of the Song of Solomon. It also tells us when, when she's dead and Peter shows up, who's there? Jesus. Not Jesus. Well, Widows. Widows. Why are they there? What were they doing? She had helped them, and now she's sick. They've been helping her, and they're also helping take care of her to bury her. So the... The widows are providing love and care for the members of the congregation when they need it. And it tells us what thing do they remember about Dorcas? Yeah, okay. This makes me think, this is the thing that's popped in my head. The last of the book of Proverbs talks about um, the, the wife of noble character. And uh, one of the things that it always says in there is she's always hard at work with the die staff in her hand. Do you guys know what a die staff is? I was going to say, Ashley knows. because she. Do you have a die staff? No. no? But she, I know what it is. What's that? I, I know how these work. 
You know how to use one? Uh, it's like, the, is it, uh, make sure I'm saying it right. It's like the old fashioned version of a spinning wheel. Is that right? Is it the thing you spin and then you wrap? No. That's a drop spindle. Okay, what's the die staff do? I know it's for. So you put the wool on a stick and then that's what you're pulling it off to spin? Okay. So it's for making string, wool, yarn, uh, so that you can then make garments out of. And um, so we see this woman who's beloved in the plain of Sharon, Sharon. Um, and she's doing these things that a faithful wife does, um, and the widows are caring for her, and the fact is she's probably uh, a widow as well, but who's her husband in one sense? Christ. Christ. And who's our husband? Christ. Christ. I know that's weird for us to say men, but it's the truth here. So we're going to have to pick up there and learn more about um, Dorcas and Lida and Sharon next time and wrap that up next time because we're out of time here. This yes. is just an aside, but my mother-in-law, when she was alive, belonged to the Dorcas Society in her church, and it was their LWML. Their LWML? It was Dorcas Society. The elders have been doing a study, and one of the things that we talked about last time two times ago, was that in the early, early church, there were, um, there was an office called widows. And what the widows did, or what these widows are doing here, they went around and they took care of the people in the church who needed it. And we kind of have a similar thing today. We call them deaconesses. It's kind of the same thing, a little different, but it's the same idea. And I think it's important that we know all the things that women can do in the church. I know that there's a picture going around that we Lutheran Church Missouri Synod people are all sexist jerks, <laughs> right? Because we only have pastors that are men. But there's lots of things that women can do in the church to care and have compassion. In fact, Compassion-wise, usually women are better at that than men, right? Because we're like um, one plus two equals three, and, and women actually have compassion. <laughs> Vicar's like, yeah, Pastor Moline has none. <laughs> Thanks, Vicar. I didn't say that. You said that. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I know what you were thinking. But um, it's also, I'll just say it this way. I know we're out of time, so I'm trying to keep it short. Some of the stuff that pastors have to do is not particularly fun. And so, because we love women, we make the men do the dirty work. Is that that's a short way to say it? Does that make sense? Some people call pastors the janitors of the soul. They're the janitors of the soul. The, the <laughs> do the dirty work. Yes. Not, not that to be jerks or mean or anything, but to do the really hard things so that not everybody else has to. So I shouldn't have gone down that path with only negative four minutes left to study, but. We started late too, so it's okay. Yeah, okay. Questions?
All right, why don't we close with a prayer here then? Dear Lord, gracious Heavenly Father, in the early church you had Christians having compassion and care for one another. You worked through the word to create and sustain faith, and in that faith, people cared for one another. Heavenly Father, we ask today for you to show your care and compassion to your servant, Bob McClellan, as he's hospitalized. If it be your will, Heavenly Father, grant him healing that he may return uh, to Gateway Vista and to uh, his normal life. Heavenly Father, if not, we ask that you would be with him and take him to you to live in peace and comfort forevermore in your eternal kingdom. Especially continue to give him peace and comfort as he misses his wife and thinks about her each and every day. Give him the comfort of the resurrection of the dead and the life everlasting through your Son, Jesus Christ, who has been raised from the dead. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen.